Uh, today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1. We'll start at verse 5, and instead of stopping at verse 7, we'll read until verse 8. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is the word of God. If you're new or visiting, I'm glad you're here today. If you were here last week, um, we were all baking in here because the AC shut down uh, right at the start of our worship. So I'm glad you're visiting today. Um, but if you're new or visiting, the Apostle Paul, uh, in the epistle to the church in Galatia, the Galatians, in chapter 5, he lists nine dimensions of gospel change, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And today we're going to be looking at two of those things together because they're similarly connected, they're similarly uh, intertwined. Um, we're going to look at gospel goodness and gospel faithfulness. Now, why do we call it gospel goodness and faithfulness? And the answer is because it's possible to demonstrate any of a few of the dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit thinking that you're actually growing spiritually, thinking that you're actually growing into spiritual maturity without ever truly being changed by the Spirit. It's possible to demonstrate love and patience and kindness, not out of an, an inner sense of security or worth, but because you're insecure, because you lack a sense of worth. And so you're really just demonstrating love and, and patience and kindness out of sheer willpower. And one of those things, it never, those kind of changes never last. And secondly, you end up developing a duplicitous life, a double life that damages your soul because one, it fills you with pride when you succeed and fear when you don't or fear that you won't. Two, it's, that's going to lead you to anger and anxiety and depression. And lastly, the most important, you think you're actually getting closer to God. You think that demonstrating these things will bring you closer to God. You think you're actually honoring God by doing that, but you're actually becoming distant from God because you're not reliant, you're not dependent, you're not connected to the, the life-giving power of God's spirit. Now in Galatians chapter 5, a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, he says, a Christian lives by the Spirit. So a Christian bears the fruit of the Spirit. And, uh, and as a result, the Apostle Paul says, Galatians chapters 5, verse 26, a Christian will not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The gospel is the end of pride. The gospel is the end of fear. And as a result, the gospel is really marks the end of anger and anxiety. You see that? Now, Gospel faithfulness, gospel goodness, they're related because goodness says, goodness says this, who I am on the outside is the same as who I am on the inside. And faithfulness, gospel faithfulness, is about being consistent in that goodness, be a person's consistency on the outside because of what he believes on the inside. So both goodness and faithfulness, they make a person whole. They make a person uh, sincere, they render a person reliable and trustworthy. It's what we call integrity. They're integrated. They're together. 
the whole person is unified, both the inside of the person and the outside of the person. There's no duplicity. You're not in parts. See, when you're whole, you're not fractioned. Whole numbers are simple. It makes you a simpler person in some ways on the outside. It makes you more winsome on the outside. You're not fractioned. You're not in parts. Now, that's very important because today we live in a very polarized and fragmented society. What do I mean by that? When you're polarized, it means everybody has to take a side these days, even in the church. Everybody's got to take a side or else, we say. And it's a fragmented society because people say they have certain values, but because they don't want to threaten or they don't want to, they don't want to damage their relationships or, or with other people or they, want, they don't want to d- d- damage their, their standing inside their careers or their reputations, who you are at church becomes fragmented from who you are at work or who you are at home, who you are with your friends. You've lost integrity. And so here the author in verse 6 says, if you claim to have fellowship with Jesus and yet you live like this or you live like that, you lie. You lack integrity. You don't live by the truth. So we're going to look at four quick things today. One, what does it mean to live in the light? Thus, living in goodness, living in gospel faithfulness. Secondly, what does it mean to walk in darkness then? How do you know that you have the light? And lastly, where is the power for gospel goodness and gospel faithfulness in our lives? Where is the power for that kind of integrated life on the inside and the outside that makes it consistent? First, we're going to look at uh, living in the light. What does it mean uh, to live in goodness, live in faithfulness? Verse 5, the author, the Apostle John, says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now think about this. When you're in the darkness, you can't see. There's no clarity. Things in the dark sometimes look good. Um, It's not that it's unreal. It's real. It looks good but they're actually harmful, and it leads you to get hurt. It leads you to to stumble. But when you're in the light, everything is exposed and everything is clear. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, God's presence, God's word, God's voice, it's beautiful because it's a lamp to my feet. Because there's light at my feet, I can walk, and I can walk safely. Because there's a lamp to my feet, I can see clearly what I thought was real is not real. What I thought was there is not there. What I didn't think was there is actually there. And so I'm able to navigate life because life is a journey. Life is a walk. You see that? There's clarity in my life. And so I don't get hurt. I don't stumble. God is light. He doesn't just say God gives us light. God is light. That means that God is beautiful because on one hand, he's clear. Through the light, you see reality, and your view of reality is shaped by being in the light. So light is objective. Light is real. Light is truth. Truth beneath the visible reality. That's why all untruth, that's why all lies are wrong, because it completely goes against the nature of God. God is light. So all lies, all untruths are wrong. It goes completely against the nature of God. God never lies. God cannot lie. And because he never lies, because he cannot lie, he's always consistent. There's a faithfulness there. There's a goodness in his truthfulness. There's a faithfulness there. His promises are real and and they're good. And so to listen to God, to know God, is to know real reality. You can trust God forever. You see that? You trust God forever if you live by his word because he is good and he is faithful and because we can trust him. 
If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. If God wants you to wait, he may make you wait. But if he promises something, he will give it to you. All throughout the Old Testament, the writers emphasize the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. In fact, in the Old Testament alone, there are over 30 references just about his goodness. His goodness alone. God never says one thing in one situation when he's talking to you and then does something else in another situation at another time and then comes back with excuses and says, well, you see, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. He never does that. The nature of God is integrity. The nature of God is integrity. And so knowing him, his spirit living in you, trusting in his word as light, it's going to give you clarity in the darkness as you're navigating life, and it's going to give you integrity no matter the circumstance, in all circumstances. Because he's light, you see. Because he is light, you're able to walk, and you have courage because there's safety in his word. There's safety in his promises. You're going to have a consistency because you know reality, even in the darkness, even if it seems incredibly dark, even if you sense a darkness in your own life. Truth exposes, and truth, being in the light, it gives life. Psalm chapter 23, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow, no darkness, uh, no light, in the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your presence, God is light. It makes you very consistent in any context. Whether you're in public, whether you're in private, at home, at work, at church, you're going to be marked by a goodness and faithfulness. Now, secondly, then, what does it mean to walk in darkness? Remember, when, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he didn't question the goodness of this fruit that God told Eve not to eat. He didn't question, he didn't say, well, you know, it's, it's very, very good. It's very tasty. That's not what he says. There's no verse that talks about the goodness of the, it was Eve that concluded that, hey, this looks pretty good. Why would God withhold it from me? She was starting to distrust God. Why? Because Satan questioned the goodness of God. By what God said. Satan asked, did God really say this? He questioned God's word. Is God's word true? He's trying to make God out to be a liar. He's questioning God's faithfulness, God's integrity. And the moment we begin to distrust God, we become liars ourselves. Even Eve, when she ate the fruit, she ate because she questioned God's goodness. I mean, it looks good, she said. It looks useful. Why would God withhold this good thing from me? Is he good? She was questioning God's goodness. She was questioning God's faithfulness. She distrusted God, and that's what kills us. If God is light, if God is clarity, if being with God is safety and security, if God's word is true, and we distrust that word, then we've chosen to live by what we see visibly in darkness. Visible reality becomes our truth. Our visible reality becomes what seems real. And Satan is known as a liar. Satan is a deceiver. So whenever you're burdened by the reality of sin in your life to the point where you feel like giving up, that's not the words of God. That's not the work of God. That's the words of the enemy. That's the words of a liar. There will never be a time in your life, I mean, guilt in some ways is helpful to a degree because you recognize, that means that you recognize there's a right and a wrong. 
That means that there's a right, that you know the difference between honoring God and doing something that is dishonored God. But when you're dwelling in the guilt to the point where you feel like giving up, you're living a lie. God will never say, look, you are never going to meet up to my commands. You are worthless. God will never do that. God will never plant untruths in your life. You are not valuable because you disobey. You know why? Because the very nature of God's love is demonstrated on the cross where Jesus obeyed fully for our sakes because we couldn't obey out of his love. You see that? And so what Satan does as a liar, he's working in that and he says, well, this is what you really need instead because he's questioning the goodness of God. You need this relationship or you need to just work harder. You need to focus on building your life because God isn't going to be good to you in the end. You're not going to live up to God in the end. And so you need to make wealth. You need to make money. You need to do whatever you can, anything to get you to turn from the goodness of God. Why are some people so driven by their need, their need for wealth or success or power or for intimacy in their lives? It's because we've believed in a lie, the lie that if I just have these things, then I'm okay, then I'm acceptable, then I'm beautiful, then I have life. You see that? If I don't, then the other part of that lie is I am worthless. And these lies have a way of motivating us. They also have a way of ruining us, especially when we fail. Every pathology that we have in life is because we've believed in the lie that instead of trusting in the nature of God, we've trusted in these lies to define who we are. Now, instead of trusting in the nature of God, and so really what, we're, what we should be doing is rooting out to some degree the lies in our lives that we've believed. When you're able to do that, you're gonna live a life of integrity because you're building on a foundation of truth. I mean, why do we read the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? Why do we remind ourselves of God's word? Why do we come and worship and hear God's word over and over? Why do we memorize God's word? Why do we seek counsel in the word from people who, are, who we believe are spiritually mature, are spiritual mentors? It's because we know truth. We know that it's important to have truth in our lives, to weed out the lies in our lives, to weed out the counterfeits in our lives. And so what we do is we need to hear these things, be reminded of these things because we're constantly distracted and we're constantly wandering. And we need to let that truth get in into our daily battles between your desires, which are built on lies, and your desires that are built on truth at the foundational core of our lives. That's the battleground. Now, <clears throat> You begin to trust then not just in God, but to trust God himself, to trust him at his word in those sinful moments, in those moments of failure or, or suffering or when you're in deep aloneness because if you don't, it's going to ruin your integrity. Now today, we don't seek counsel in the church. We seek approval disguised as seeking counsel. I'm going to say that again. In our world today, we don't seek counsel, not genuinely. Most of us, if we're honest, we actually seek approval from other people disguised as seeking counsel in the church. It's like a thing we do. It's like a cultural thing we do. We don't really want truth. We don't want to be told that we're living a lie. We don't want to be told that we have double lives. We don't want to be told that we're placing our identity in something that is not real or not true because we're buying into the visual, the importance of the visual realities of life. We want acceptance 
we want approval. We're still buying into the lie. And it ruins our goodness. It ruins our faithfulness. It ruins our integrity. Now think about this. If the word of God is not trustworthy, if the word of God is not true, if God is not good, if God is not faithful, then what you desire and what you're pursuing actually matters. There's no real master in your life, so all that you can do is follow what you desire, what you want to pursue. Now, that means that you can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, do whatever you want to do, anytime, place. That may sound appalling to some. It may sound super appealing to other people, but it's not going to make you good, and it's certainly not going to make you faithful. Why? Because then you can't say, well, rape and oppression and even these kind of things, these wrongs that are done against me, this is wrong, this is evil. You can't say that because on what moral ground on what basis, on what moral basis can you assert that anything is evil if there's no master, if there's no true transcendent master, if there's no true, true transcendent uh, word that says, hey, this is just or unjust? What makes your view true any more than the next person's? When you rid yourself of God as truth, you're throwing away any truth altogether. Then nothing is wrong. Everything can be right. Well, then there's no such thing as right. There's no such thing as objective certainty. There's no such thing as objective reality or objective meaning. Why be good or faithful at all? But if there is such a thing as truth, if there is such a thing as goodness, if there is such a thing as faithfulness and integrity, then we need to trust in the nature of God. He is light. He brings it out. We need to trust in his word. It is a lamp unto our feet our feet. Otherwise, we're just living in uh, darkness, disguised as clarity. Thirdly, then, how do you know you're in it? How do you know you're living in light, a light that drives goodness and faithfulness? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, we read, if you claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. The nature of goodness and faithfulness is uh, to be sincere and to be consistent in that sincerity. Whether you are in private or in public, public, the nature of goodness, the nature of faithfulness is to be sincere and to be consistent in that sincerity whether you are in private or in public. Now, in other words, you're not just one way in private and a completely different way in public. That's not sincere. That's the double life. That's not sincere. That's not good. But the way you are on the outside is driven by the way you are on the inside. It comes from what you are in the inside. In fact, one way, um, in fact, the word sincere uh, comes from the Latin word or the Latin root phrase, sine sera, which means without wax. Why? Because in ancient times, Sculptors, they hid imperfections. What they did was as you're spending all this time on something and, and money, right, raw resources on something, you're building the sculpture, the cracks start to form. You, don't, you, you, take, you cut corners and there's cracks, there's imperfections. Um, there's problems with these sculptures. And what they, do, what they did was they filled those cracks with wax. And it was a dishonest way of selling a product. You're saying, hey, this is, you're giving it a stamp of approval, and you're saying, hey, this is good, but in actuality, it's got imperfections and problems. That's insincere. But if you were an honest artist, you hung a sign out in your business, and you're basically saying, this is, I'm certifying that what you buy because of how it looks on the outside is because 
That's how it is on the inside. So I'm not going to cover up cracks. If there are cracks, there are cracks. But if there's a good piece of sculpture out there in my store, you know it's being honest. And so you hung out the sign and it said, Sine Sarah, without wax. It meant I'm sincere. It was a commitment. It was a commitment that there's no cover up. All the cracks are visible. So to be sincere is to be whole, even if there are cracks. You had integrity. And a Christian's goodness is not because he's nicer than. He's not covering up cracks just to look nicer or to be nicer, but because he is new. He has been made new. How do you know that you're new? That's the question. How do you know that you're new? Not just nicer through sheer willpower. What are the signs? One, you're humbler. If you're made new, if you say, I've truly been made new in the gospel, the gospel has transformed my heart. Well, the obvious assertion you can make is that gospel character then should be new to you. That means that you can admit that, look, my life is filled with lies. I've been chasing lies all my life until now. Now I've come to the truth. You can admit a lack of integrity in your life. When you're called out on a lack of goodness, you could say, yeah, you know why? Because this is new to me. You can, you can be called out on a lack of faithfulness in your life. You could say, you know what? Instead of it offending you, you can say, yeah, this is new to me. The gospel makes you humbler. But secondly, it makes you vulnerable. We said last week that kindness consists of a type of vulnerability that enables you to open up about yourself. You're able to offer truth about yourself and offer admissions about other people as well. You can say, look, I, can, I, can, I see stuff in you, because, and I love you, and so out of your kindness, you can open them up as well as open yourself up. But in goodness, there's a type of vulnerability, but in a way that allows you to lower your guard so that you can receive critique. You see that? If you truly believe that you are a sinner, then you are open to critique. You will lower your defenses, lower your card so that it would make you vulnerable. You're open to critique about yourself. There's a vulnerability that leads you to teachability. There's a vulnerability that leads you to submissiveness. There's a vulnerability, that kind of vulnerability, it's life-giving. There's a, now, I'm not saying it's easy. It's impossible without the Spirit of God working in your life. It's just one of the indicators. There's a sincerity, a consistency in that, a goodness and a faithfulness that increases intimacy. It doesn't decrease intimacy. It increases relational intimacy because it increases trustworthiness. Verse 8, if we walk in the light, light exposes, light brings things out. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Why? Why is that possible? Because the gospel humbles you and the gospel lowers your guard. You know you're sinful and you know your sin, specific sins. You know you lack integrity. You know you, you lack goodness at times. You know you lack faithfulness. And yet the blood of Jesus, verse 8 says, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's what brings you together. In other words, what brings you together is not, wow, like you're smart and I want to be around smart people. You're attractive. I want to be around attractive people. The gospel actually goes counter, counter to that, counterintuitively. 
The gospel says, you are a sinner and so am I. And we're both kind of battling this together. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. That brings what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Otherwise, there's an arrogance that sets in that's really driven by the apprehension that you're actually more sinful than you want to believe yourself to be. But you still want people's approval. And when you don't get it, what happens? There's anxiety. There's anger. There's depression. It's the cause of, I would say, 99% of all the problems in the church. Interrelational issues that exist in the church. It's the failure to really look at yourself for who you really are on the inside. We, we tend to have such dissonance because we want to believe something about ourselves, but we also know our reality. And when we get called out on the reality, we want to push what we want to believe about ourselves. It's a double life. It's another shade of that double life. We still want that approval. We want to protect our reputations. And so instead of there being a freshness in your life, your life becomes more stale. Instead of there being an openness in your life, your life becomes more guarded, becomes more fake. But to have integrity means who you are on the outside is who you are on the inside. Hey, I, I see a lack of integrity in you. You're able to look at that. That's going to humble you. It's going to break you. It makes you vulnerable. And you say, you know what? It's because I lack integrity on the inside. I'm struggling through this. We have fellowship with one another. I need help. That is genuine friendship. That also makes you incredibly winsome as a person. Incredibly winsome as a person. To ensure that, you have to put yourself through an intense QA process. You are a product. You are a creation. You are created in the image of God. You have to put yourself through an intense QA process by putting down your defenses and opening up yourself to the truth of the word of God, living by the light. Submit to it. Thirdly, what happens is it requires consistency. Some of you are incredibly responsible and mature at work, but not at home. You're incredibly immature and irresponsible at home. Some of you are incredibly responsible at home with your children, with your families, with your bills and your payments and your, and your investments, but you're terribly un- irresponsible at church. You see that? So there is this public life and there's this private side of you and then there's this inner side of you, the inner man, we say, that inner self. And, and there's, there's a dissonance there. And uh, you're never going to be whole. So you're not truly good, not wholly good, not in all places. You're not, that makes you unfaithful. Because if you're only part, part of the way faithful, part faithful at home but not at work, or faithful at work but not at, at church, then, then you're not faithful. You're only good and faithful on your own terms in a way where, it, especially when there's something in it for you. There's something that you desire or pursue that's deeper at home or at work or at church. You see that? There are people in this room, I mean, who are really, really, they're just super ordered at work. They're proud of the fact that they're ordered at work. They've got it together at work. And they act kind and nice at church. There are other people who are really, really good and well-ordered and mature and responsible in the church, but in their private lives, they're very self-indulgent. They're, very, they're even impure. 
You know what a Christian says? A Christian asks, who gave me my job? Who gave me my salary? Who gave me this role? Who gave me my intelligence? Who gave me my spouse? Who gave me these children? Who gave me my home? Who gave me my family? Who gave me my portfolio, my retirement portfolio? Did I earn it all on my own? And if you say, well, God gave me this, well, then who owns my life? Who owns my job? Who owns my family? Who owns my home? Who owns my retirement? It's called lordship. It's called most of us come to church because Jesus is our savior. There's no cost to that. But we don't see Jesus as our king. That costs you your life. If Jesus Christ is Lord, if he owns you, then you live by one truth. There is only one truth, no matter the circumstance. It is singular truth. That's going to make you consistent in all areas of your life. Where is the power to live like that? Because we are so not like that. Where is the power to live like that? In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple. And it's at the end of one of the culmination of one of the greatest feasts that were observed throughout the year in Jewish culture. And there Jesus stands in front of these two candles, these large candles that lit up the, the, uh, the one side of Jerusalem, essentially, the one side of the temple for sure. And he's standing before these candles that have actually been taken down, really. They're, about, they're on the verge of being taken down. And he says, I am the light of the world. He's literally saying this. He's saying, I am the exact radiance of God. The author of Hebrews says later on, in Hebrews chapter 1, that the sun is the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He, he, what Jesus is saying is, I am that same light, that same power that blazed through the desert to guide the people of, uh, of Israel, to guide God's people through the wilderness on their way to Israel. I am that light. I am the exact radiance of God. But on the cross, do you know, one of the gospels says that darkness came over the land as Jesus was dying. In other words, there was no light. If you think about what's happening, at the center point of Jesus' death, there was darkness. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Sorry, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus literally became sin. It means that the wrath of God was pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. He took our place as a sinner. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, he said, enveloped in darkness enveloped in sin, enveloped in death. Why? So that we who are sinners, deserving death, Jesus Christ received everything that we deserved. Why? So that we would receive everything that he deserved. So that we would be enveloped in light. So that God's word would be a lamp to our feet. So we can navigate life safely. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To leave the... God is light, and for God to forsake Jesus means what? Now I am experiencing the ultimate darkness. I have the ultimate darkness in my life. 
Because I've lost God, I've lost light, I've lost, and yet, you know, to the end, Jesus is reciting scripture. To the end, Jesus is, is thinking for his people. You know what the first thing he says in the midst of all that suffering? Father, forgive them. To the end, Jesus is focused on what? Faithfulness to God, his commands, his promises. Jesus says, forgive them. They're in darkness. To the end, Jesus is good. To the end, even in his own life, Jesus is faithful. No matter what the circumstance, people are mocking him, telling him, well, if you are who you say you are, if you're not a liar, come down. What does he do? He stays. Not because of his unfaithfulness, not because he had anything to prove, but because of his goodness, because of his faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his people. To the degree that you believe, to the degree that you see Jesus Christ suffering, bleeding, and dying, demonstrating his goodness and faithfulness to you, that gives you the power to be good and faithful in any circumstance. To the, see, to the degree that you see Jesus suffering and bleeding in just the worst circumstances, completely alone, utterly in darkness, the ground quaking beneath his feet, and yet he is immobile on the cross. He is hanging on the cross, gasping for air to the degree that you see him taking every last breath for his people and for God's glory. You see him faithful to God's, he trusted in God's promise, even as God had forsaken him. Forensically, he had lost the father and yet he was still trusting in the promise of God. That's the faithfulness of Jesus and to the degree that you see him doing that for you so that you would have light, God's word will be a light to your feet. God's presence will be in you. That means you have light. In any darkness in your life, there is light. You can live in truth. You will know truth. It is possible for you to find truth, to navigate life in any circumstance. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, faithful. New mercies I see. All I have needed, your hands have provided. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Look at the sincerity of Jesus. Never once did he ever say one thing and do something else. Never once did he do one thing in private and something else in public. Never once did he think one thing about you and say something differently to you. Never once was he one way in public, another way in private, and yet another way in the inner man. The cross shows all three things, public, private, inner all in one shot, the same. That makes him faithful. It makes him dependable. It makes him reliable. It makes him trustworthy. It makes his promises real because even death couldn't hold him down. He lives. His promises are real. To the degree that you believe that, the gospel will make you good and faithful in any circumstance. 
because of your love for God, because of your love for Jesus, there's the approval and the validation that you need. Because of God's love for you and Jesus' approval of you, there's the approval and the validation that you've been looking for all your life. You don't have to be one way in one place and another way in another. You can be faithful because you are faithful to the king of the universe. In our society, in our churches today, there's a fakeness. There's an insincerity. There's a flakiness. As we approach the table today, I want to call you to look to the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus and let that drive yours. Let's pray together.